you bow with me in prayer for just one moment? Our Father, it is with eager expectation that we always open your Bible. You have communicated to us who you are. You've communicated to us what your requirement of us is to be. Most of all, you've communicated to us the person of Jesus Christ. And as we open the pages of this book, Lord, we are enamored by Christ. And we are enthralled by his life and by his death, by his resurrection, his ascension, his current ministry, his soon coming, his future reign, and his forever kingdom. And so, Lord, it is with fear and trepidation that we would dare to interpret and to speak your word. I pray for your servant that he might do his job well. And I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God, even now, is enlivening the hearts of these precious ones, Lord, to hear, to receive, to obey. And particularly, Lord, if there are any among us who do not know Christ, that today might be the day when the Spirit of God would work in them and give them the new birth and regenerate their hearts that they might have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to your word this morning. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We pray for the sake of Christ and his glory. Amen. I don't know what was going through the mind of the Apostle Peter in the mid-60s A.D. when after three decades of faithfully serving Christ and proclaiming the gospel of Christ to his church, building up the church, Peter, according to strong early tradition, was forced to watch his wife be executed in Rome before he himself was executed traditionally, at his own request, crucified upside down so that he wouldn't trample the hallowed ground of the crucifixion of Christ. I don't know what he was thinking, but I do know the principle behind what he did. The principle that he believed with all of his heart that led to his his own faithfully following Christ all the way to his own cross. The principle is one that Christ himself preached and is found in our text this morning. And it's a principle which is what some have called the great irony of the Christian faith. And that is that if you love your life, you will lose it. But if you hate your life, you will save it. And Peter followed Christ all the way to eternity, no matter the cost. He did not love his life. And following Christ is our concern this morning. That's what we would like to address. And we began a mini-series in John chapter 12 a couple of Sundays ago to do our duty as God's appointed shepherds, under-shepherds of the church, to God's people, to genuinely show concern to all who would call themselves believers in Christ. Because the reality is, is that those, all those who say they belong to Christ don't actually belong to him. Not all of them do. And so we're called as shepherds to proclaim Christ in the strongest and most challenging terms possible. We're called to do what the Apostle Paul did with the Corinthian church when he said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Those are strong words and we are called to follow suit. Because every person listening this morning will fall into one of four categories. You are either the true believer who is exhorted yet encouraged by these these tests, or you're the true believer who is made more fearful to obey Christ because you know in your heart that you're living an inconsistent life. Third category, you are the false believer who has the growing sense of dread that maybe you're not regenerate, maybe your years in the church, maybe your years of doing Christian things were all for nothing, or you are the false believer who has deceived yourself and all the more smug in your self-righteousness the more times you hear the gospel proclaimed. Every one of you fall into one of those four categories. So we're doing what I've called a faith checkup. We're issuing some litmus tests of your faith. The first two tests that we've already examined, do you love Christ? Do you worship Christ? And today we're going to examine, do you follow Christ? Do you follow Christ? And our text today is John 12, beginning in verse 20 through verse 26. 
Jesus has just ridden toward Jerusalem in what really was a very anticlimactic ending. He had presented himself as the king of Israel, and, and many of the people were crying out to the king and, and proclaiming him king, but the whole thing died down just as suddenly as it began. And because Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to receive the throne of Israel because he came to die, that whole kind of false coronation really died down. And now we find ourselves in the Passion Week, the, the week of the fast Passover feast in which Jews and even some Gentiles from all over the world have made the pilgrimage now to Jerusalem. Jesus has now come back to Jerusalem. He had gone back for one night to the village of Bethany. And now we come upon him at some point later in the week. And our text today is going to provide this test for us of do you follow Christ? And we'll divide that into three parts or three qualifiers And as we've done in other messages, we'll just finish that sentence with several qualifiers. And we'll spend the lion's share of our time on the first qualifier. We'll spend a a little bit less time on the second. And then we'll just do a brief mention of the third, since it's really a, a result of the first two. I really want to drive the first one home for a little while for us here, though. The first qualifier, the first test, do you follow Christ in humility? Do you follow Christ in humility? And as we like to do when there's a story, let's just let the story unfold slowly as it comes to us. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So there are some Greeks here and they are going to request to see Jesus in the next verse and they are really proving the Pharisees' exaggerated statement in verse 19 where they said, look, the world has gone after him. And so they're representing really this, the idea that now more and more people are interested in Christ. But before we get to that, we have to find out who these Greeks are because it's important. John just calls them some Greeks, which really doesn't give us much help here in the 21st century. So we have to do a little investigation. Now, some have argued that they are simply Greek-speaking Jews, but John just calls them Greeks, and he's been very clear up to this point in the gospel when he identifies Jews. And so his specificity earlier in the gospel gives us a clue that he's being specific here as well. But it's also not likely that they're simply ethnic Greek people from the actual country of Greece. That wouldn't make the spiritual point that John's making here. So who are these Greeks? Well, I think it's fairly simple. At this point in history, the entire Mediterranean world spoke Greek. So it simply means that they are Greek-speaking Gentiles from some other part of the world, with Greeks being kind of an umbrella term for anybody who's not a Jew. The Bible says that the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Greeks, everyone else who's not Jewish. As a matter of fact, right in the area of Israel, there were 10 Greek-speaking cities known as the Decapolis, just south of the Sea of Galilee. But what's important that we notice here is that there are two words that in a Bible written almost exclusively by Jews seem to be very at odds with each other. And these are the words worship and Greeks. How is that? How is that that the feast that these Greeks, these non-Jews are coming to celebrate was the Passover remembrance of how God delivered the Jews from Israel, from Egypt rather, 1,500 years earlier. How is that that these Greeks are coming to celebrate something that has nothing to do with them? Why are they here? Yet here they are, non-Jews coming to worship the God of the Jews. These are God-fearing Gentiles. Those who believe that the God of the Jews was the true and living God, they weren't Jewish by descent, so they're making a a conscious faith choice to come all the way to Jerusalem to worship at Passover. This wasn't just because it was a family religious tradition. This was something they wanted to do. Exodus 12, verse 19, allowed for the non-Jew called the sojourner, the stranger, to eat the Passover as an act of worship under certain rigid circumstances. They might have been official converts to Judaism, but it's not necessary that that's the case. They're probably more similar to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 or the centurion of Luke 7 who loved the God of Israel but weren't full converts to Judaism. If they were converts to Judaism, they would be allowed into the inner courts of the temple. 
but Gentile God-fearers who had not officially converted, they were not allowed into the inner courts. In fact, there was a death penalty imposed on those who would try to violate that. And so most feel that these are simply God-fearing Gentiles, yet they're not allowed into the inner courts. They're not allowed into the, the most precious place of worship. So here are Gentiles who seem to have a genuine faith in the true and living God, and yet they're excluded from full participation in worship. To put it in terms that we can understand, they're relegated to the overflow section, and in our day, they'd only be able to sit and watch a TV monitor in another room. I mean, how would you like it if we stood at the door and we said, you can come in, you can come in. I'm sorry, you have to go back to that room by the restroom and watch a TV instead. But that's what happened to them. They came to worship God and yet they're still outsiders. But they had heard of a man named Jesus. And Jesus was someone who was granting access to God by faith alone with no mention of temple rules, no mention of temple regulations. And this man was someone who had regularly interacted with and regularly healed Gentiles. So in verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They requested to speak with the Lord Jesus. They first approached Philip to bring him, bring them to Jesus. And John notes that Philip is from Bethsaida in Galilee. He's a Jew living near the Hellenistic Greek towns of the Decapolis. And these were towns affected enough by Greek culture that parents uh, were giving kids Greek names. Philip was one of them. He was named after the father of Alexander the Great. And so perhaps they're approaching the one most likely to be able to bridge the gap between the Jewish Jesus and the Greeks. So they went to a Jew with a Greek name. I think that makes sense. That's logical. They didn't want to just observe Jesus. They wanted to be introduced to him. And so they went to someone who they felt possibly could make that happen. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly why Philip went to Andrew first. It could be he just didn't know what to do. It could also be that Andrew already had a track record of bringing people to Jesus. He had brought his own brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. So maybe Philip thought that Andrew could kind of help with this situation. But Philip might have had reservations about bringing them to Jesus, and for good reason. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, these are instructions that, that Philip had received with the, other, with the 12 by Jesus. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus did come first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, but in the sovereign plan of God, the method by which God would then turn to the Gentiles would be Israel's rejection of Christ. So he had to go to Israel first. He had to go to the Jew first. And at the point recorded here in Matthew 10, that official rejection hadn't taken place yet. So Jesus said, go to the Jews. Don't go near the Gentiles right now. Now, John doesn't give a reason why these Greeks wanted to see Jesus. They may have heard the buzz about town that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's entirely likely. I think it's more likely that it's possible that a day or two had now elapsed since verse 19. And a couple days have gone by. And by now, Jesus had cleansed the temple and listened from Mark's account for something that might be of interest to a Gentile God-fearer who's not allowed to enter the temple but has to worship from afar. Listen to Mark 11. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? You think maybe that got their attention? House of prayer for all the nations, not just the Jews. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, he's referring to Isaiah 56, 7, which is part of a, a stunning portion of Isaiah in which God reveals and unfolds the details of his plan to bring salvation from sin, not just to Israel, but to all peoples. 
And so what was it that these Gentile God-fearers who wished to speak to Jesus, what are they counting on? They're counting on the prophecy of Isaiah being true, that they too can have access to God. In fact, this is an important enough text. I want to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah 56 for a moment. Keep your finger in John 12. But turn to Isaiah 56. And in this passage, Jesus has referenced as he, as he cleansed the temple, but there's a, there's a context to it that I think will be helpful for you. God never intended for Israel to be an exclusive nation with the idea of excluding everyone else from the worship of God. Israel, yes, was to be an exclusive nation. They were to be set apart. They were to be shown as different but not so they could be exclusive, so they could display what faith in God looks like, to display God to the nations, to make God big in the world, and to bring all peoples to faith. And Isaiah 56 outlines a future day when outcasts, when the least likelies, will be brought into the kingdom of God. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Now, the original audience of Isaiah were the exiles in Babylon. And and all that's described in these final chapters of Isaiah would theoretically have come to pass if Israel had returned from exile as a faithful nation. But ultimately, they didn't. Ezra 9 and 10 records that those returning from exile would ultimately betray the Lord again, falling into great sin, intermarrying with idol-worshiping pagan neighbors, rejecting their place as the set-apart, holy, sanctified, different nation, such that God came down on them again. Ezra 10 verse 1, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. In other words, we did it again and the kingdom hasn't come. And so God's kingdom program isn't coming yet. It will come later to, to, a, to a later generation of Israel And Isaiah 56, all the way to the end of the book, describes this coming kingdom program. And so in the first two verses, God gives a general encouragement to be a law keeper, to be righteous before the Lord. And for the person under the old covenant, under the law of Moses, this was most characterized by keeping the Sabbath, the the sign of the old covenant given by God. That if from a heart of love and a heart of devotion and a a heart of, of pure worship to the Lord, you were keeping Sabbath, you were paying attention to the law, you were demonstrating an authentic, genuine, saving faith. Now, obviously, this isn't an admonition to us today to keep Sabbath law, but the principle still applies that the genuineness of your faith is confirmed by the obedience of your life. In the New Testament, James 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no, it can't. It's a false faith. And so God encourages the faithful, be obedient, show your faith to be genuine. In fact, Israel was not to think that she was alone in God's kingdom. And so in this text, God gives encouragement to two formerly inferior groups 
as examples of how God extends his grace in salvation to all who would ask for it. The first group are the foreigners. And that's kind of an old-fashioned word for us, but that's the word that's used here in the text. God told Moses and Aaron and Aaron in Exodus 12 that no foreigner shall eat of the Passover except under very extenuating rigid circumstances, demonstrating that Israel is a set-apart nation. In fact, from Exodus 12, 48, you could not eat of the Passover as a foreigner unless you fully converted, meaning you and all the males in your family were circumcised and you became a Jew. But now in God's overall kingdom plan, he says in the first part of verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. What does it take to be included in God's kingdom program? To join themselves to the Lord and demonstrate true faith through obedience. Verse six, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. And so the context of these Greeks who were coming to see Jesus the question becomes, were they God-fears who could not participate in Passover according to the law, or were they full converts to Judaism through circumcision, joining themselves to God's people as Jews? Well, that's an interesting question, because first of all, they're pretty unlikely to travel all the way to Jerusalem just to not participate, right? But also, it's also unlikely that they were full converts, because if they were converts, John would have called them Jews, but he calls them Greeks. So they're not converts. They're not Jews. So it seems that they're allowed enough participation to make the journey worthwhile. And certainly with over a million people coming to Jerusalem, there's no way the priests are going to track who is who with any sort of accuracy. And yet there's still a separation. There's a distinction. There's a difference. They are less than the full Jew. They're less than. But in the Isaiah 56 text that Jesus cites, there's a second example of how God extends his grace to all who would ask. Eunuchs are given as an example of God's grace. These men whose reproductive ability has been literally removed. Second Kings 20 indicates that some of the men taken captive by Babylon would be castrated. This is a common practice in the ancient Near East for slaves to ensure that, that A, they didn't have children and B, they didn't get distracted by romantic interests and But for a Jewish man in a society where the covenant blessing of God came so much through family, where family was everything, having sons and having daughters was your future, to be a eunuch meant you were essentially excluded from God's covenant blessings. And in fact, to demonstrate the pure, set-apart nature of Israel, Deuteronomy 23, 1 states in very graphic terms that I won't read to you that no eunuch shall be permitted in the corporate worship gathering with Israel. To be a eunuch in human terms meant that you had no future, no lasting legacy. You were less than. But God says to them, those who demonstrate true saving faith, in verse 5, he promises to give them within the kingdom a monument and a name, he says, that is better than sons and daughters. And what is that? A permanent place in God's future kingdom. That's their legacy. And in fact, unlike the cutting off of the reproductive ability which seemingly destroyed their future, verse 5 says they will be given an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And so for the outcasts of the world, those like the foreigner and the eunuch, look what the Lord will do. In verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. They'll be accepted as full worshipers. By the way, just to make sure this point came across clearly to us, God gave us an example of a foreigner and a eunuch who came to faith in God through Jesus Christ, and that is the court official of the queen of Ethiopia as recorded in Acts chapter 8. He fits both categories. Listen, the kingdom of God will not be comprised primarily of all those from a human standpoint are high and mighty and smart and wealthy and good-looking, all that we might call the most likelies. In fact, the election of the saints of God is most often occurring, I think, among the least likelies. The apostle Paul says in no uncertain terms, In 1 Corinthians 1, 
consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As a matter of fact, those who think they are the most likely are arrogant and self-righteous and they won't be invited to the kingdom. They won't be invited. And so these least likelies, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, who at some level are excluded from the worship of God, they get it right. I know how to worship God. I go to Jesus and he'll get me in. Turn back with me to John 12. Let's try to grasp kind of the hope that these Greeks are clinging to. They're Gentiles coming to a pointedly non-Gentile friendly Israel, an Israel run religiously by men who take pride in their ethnicity, who boast about being descended from Abraham, thinking that this is the inherent pathway to God's favor. I have the right DNA. You have the wrong DNA. Isn't that too bad for you? So these these Greeks, these Gentiles, they're coming with hat in hand. They have nothing to offer God except their allegiance. And listen, try to grasp this. They have no history with Israel. They can't rejoice that their ancestors were saved from Egypt. They can't revel in the glory days of David and Solomon. They can't rejoice that their forefathers were released from captivity five centuries earlier. That's not their history. It doesn't belong to them. And so from a Jewish standpoint, they bring nothing of value. They bring nothing And yet they say what many consider some of the most touching, beautiful, moving words in all of the Bible, respectfully, politely, humbly. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Those are truly beautiful words because they went to the one person who could do anything about the fact that they were the least likely. They're in the category of the Gentile Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 and Mark 7. She had a daughter who was oppressed by a demon. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter, both because Jesus' primary mission was still to the Jews and to make a point about faith. Jesus told her that his mission was first to the Jews. He called them the children. He said to her, as recorded in Mark 7, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He's not calling her a dog. He's, calling, he's talking about the household pet, the beloved pets. He's saying, I'm giving the food to the children first and to the pets later. And of course, in his sovereignty, Jesus was setting up for the woman's tremendously humble answer of faith. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. No one comes to Christ as a follower with head held high. We come in humility, knowing that we deserve nothing. We don't come asking to be children. We come asking for crumbs as dogs. And then God chooses to make us his children. Let me ask a really hard question. Is there a small part of you that thinks that God should be grateful to have you? Is there a small part of you that thinks that God should be grateful to have you? Because if there is, God does not have you and you do not have him, you are unregenerate and you are fooling yourself by looking into the spiritual mirror wearing the mask of self-righteous pride and you believe the lie. But God doesn't buy it for a moment. Let me put it this way. The unbeliever, as he's hurtling toward the lake of fire, will be in shock and in surprise that God did not accept him. And the believer, as you're ascending to the glories of heaven, you'll still be in shock and surprise that God did accept you. That's the difference. Don't ever ask anyone, would you like to accept Jesus? Ask someone, would you like to ask Jesus to accept you? That's the real issue. 
the first qualifier, do you follow Christ in humility? There is no other way. The second qualifier, do you follow Christ in loyalty? In loyalty. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, at this moment, Jesus didn't respond directly to their request, but he does respond to the dynamic that's at play here, the dynamic that the Gentiles are representing the fact that as the Jews begin to turn against Messiah in the coming days, Gentiles will more and more appeal for his attention and for his care. Now, don't read too much into the fact that Jesus doesn't respond directly to them by the fact that he's just away, uh, days away from going to the cross. He is responding to them by the coming act of redemption at Calvary. But this is a bigger moment than just answering the, an individual group of Gentiles. This is a much bigger moment. This is a pivotal time. It's a time of the glorification of the Son of Man, of God come to earth as a human being. Jesus said, the hour has come. This is literally the hinge on which the Gospel of John turns. This is the pivot point. He's speaking of the climactic point of his mission, which is to go to the cross. Up till now, the hour that he speaks of has always been future. John 2, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. John 4, two times, Jesus said, the hour is coming. John 7, his hour had not yet come. John 8, his hour had not yet come. But from this verse on, the hour is immediate. Just a few verses later in the same speech in John 12, 27, I have come to this hour John 13, 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. John 17, 1, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So this is a big moment. Here in verse 23, Jesus refers to himself so often as he so often did as the son of man. Son of man is most often used by Jesus in connection either to his suffering or in connection to his glory. And in this case, he combines both. This impending death is the first step to receiving glory. In fact, back in verse 16, we get a commentary that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And listen, it's not just that the glorification of Christ would follow the shame and follow the suffering of the cross, but there's glory in the cross, glory in the shame. The suffering servant of Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, all the way through all of Isaiah 53, it begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's not just talking about after the cross. It is the cross. It's in the midst of the cross. It's not just after the cross. It's in the cross, through the cross, through the suffering. Jesus himself would pray in John 17 that the hour had come to glorify your son. In other words, he was about to be glorified by going to his death. Don't ever think that Jesus is glorified despite the suffering of the cross. He's glorified in and through and by and with the cross. And in fact, Jesus now refers in in picturesque metaphorical terms to his impending substitutionary death And he gives an explosively effective word picture of his own coming death. In verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He depicts himself as a kernel of wheat planted into the ground. The kernel itself dies to bring a rich harvest. About a hundred or more kernels of wheat uh, per plant can, can happen up to 250 on a really rich plant. So in an agrarian society, they fully understand this illustration. And like the seed which is sacrificed for the life of a great coming crop, Jesus' death would generate a, a plentiful harvest. And this would vindicate his death as having a purpose that the Son of God is glorified in that his death produced something. It produced a result. It produced fruit. Listen, The death of Christ was not just some hopeless example of self-sacrifice that we're supposed to aspire to. It was an actual payment that accomplished the payment of a very real debt. It was a debt owed to God for our violation of his holy standards. And this picture of this planted seed, everyone hearing this would be familiar with this. 
In fact, in rabbinic literature, the picture of the kernel of grain is used as a symbol for the end times resurrection of the dead. One ancient source argues for the resurrection by using what we call an argument from the lesser to the greater. This source said, if the grain of wheat, which is buried naked, sprouts forth in many robes, how much more so the righteous who are buried in their raiment? In other words, that all the righteous are like a seed that dies and comes forth. The suffering of Christ was necessary for the kingdom to come. It couldn't come any other way because without payment for sin, no one can enter the kingdom. And if no one can enter the kingdom, there's no kingdom citizens and that's not a kingdom. How strongly did Jesus feel about the substitutionary payment, about his own suffering? He said that anyone who thought Messiah came to earth to give the kingdom to Israel without suffering was a fool that you cannot believe that without being foolish. Someone who had not rather understood the scriptures. He told his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said in Luke 24, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus declares something about his death. It's not just he's an example of self-sacrifice. It's that his death would, he says, bear much fruit. What does this mean? Well, all you have to do is go to the book of Acts and begin to see that the gospel went first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the outermost parts of the earth. The gospel would spread geographically. The gospel would spread over time. It's been spreading for 2,000 years and shows no sign of letting up. Such that Revelation 5 verse 9 pictures all the saints singing to Christ in heaven of his worthiness to open the scroll, the deed to the earth. And this future scene says they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Listen to this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. There are thousands and thousands of language groups on earth. There are language groups literally only spoken by a few hundred people in certain remote parts of the world. And yet Jesus has shown us that every one of them will be represented in heaven. Planting one seed and countless millions and perhaps billions of believers in Christ as a result. Now, we've taken the long way around this What does this have to do with following Christ in loyalty? What does it have to do with that? Because Jesus isn't just saying that he's going to die to be the seed which falls into the ground, to be the one of whom Philippians 2 says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's setting up the listener to see the qualification to follow him. What is the qualification? Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, Jesus has said, verse 24, I'm going to die. Verse 25, if you want to follow me, you must die too. That is the qualification. To be loyal to him, you must follow him as far as he went. The loss of life is necessary for the emergence of new life. Jesus is saying what is about to happen to him in verse 24 must happen to anyone who would follow after him. Now, Jesus uses a well-known ancient Semitic saying which expressed the idea of preference in terms of love or hate. He isn't speaking of hatred on an absolute scale of loathing and disgust. He's not like the, the teenage girl who slams her door and says, I hate my life. That's not what he's doing here. It's just a way of saying that there's a choice to be made. To love your life means that at a fundamental level, you believe that your value, your rights, your goals, your dreams, your inherent worth supersedes the value of God and God's rights over you. It's the elevation of self to the, to the pinnacle and the zenith of importance that is the idolatry of you. And that, by the way, is the heartbeat of sin. That's what sin is. It is the elevation of self in pride. Now, verse 
25 contains a parallel set of contrasts which mean the same thing. And it's patterned after really a classic Hebrew uh, poetic parallelism. First, Jesus gives the contrast of loving your life versus hating your life. And in the parallel, he gives the contrast of in this world versus eternal life. What is he speaking of when he says the world? Well, he means the world system which is characterized by rebellion, by death, by sin, by, by coming judgment. The Apostle John revisited this theme extensively about 50 years later in his first epistle. And he said in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is exactly the same contrast that Jesus just gave. That you can love the world or you can abide forever, meaning have eternal life, but you cannot do both. You can't do both. You can prefer the interests of the world or you can prefer Christ. And by the way, this includes things which are not inherently wrong or bad unless they're preferred over Christ. Christ is not to be take second place to your family. He is not to take second place to your personal dreams. He is not to take second place to possessions. He is not to take second place to your aspirations. He is not to take second place to whatever you think you need to accomplish in this world. And this is under attack in our culture right now. It is so difficult for new believers to separate themselves from their own dreams, their own goals, and to go instead to what Scripture says to do. This happens in the area of gender roles. It happens in the area of human sexuality. We keep trying to mix the world with Christ, and the two don't mix. They don't mix. Jesus portrayed this preference in terms of the kingdom of heaven and how the kingdom must be your priority. He used two little short parables. He said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's not that somehow we can attain to God's favor by giving things up, but he's illustrating the incredible value placed on the kingdom that Christ is valued and preferred literally over everything else, including your life. Jesus gave a no-holds-barred explanation about what the cost of following him means. He said in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Luke 9, Jesus gave a threefold lesson, a, a, a three, a triple punch here and what it means to follow him in loyalty. Luke 9, verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, I'm homeless. Are you willing to follow me there? That's test number one. He gives a second punch to another. He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this man's father wasn't dead. He meant, let me stay loyal to my family until that obligation is passed, and then I will follow you. To which Jesus was saying, either I'm first or I'm not. Choose now. He gives a third punch, a third test. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me say farewell to those at my home. I'm not going back to my family for a long time. I just want to go back and say goodbye for a little bit. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this guy may have thought, well, I'm better than the last one. I just want to go say goodbye. But this still means he was thinking about his love and his loyalty to anything and anyone other than Christ. Can I put it this way? You don't come to Christ pointed in this direction while looking back 
and missing those things behind you. Pick. Go that way or go that way. But Jesus said you cannot do both. You're either all in or you're all out. There's no in between. Jesus says this in no uncertain terms. The key to this whole passage, verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. What does it mean to follow? Self is displaced. Self is replaced by Christ. This is the picture of a loyal servant following his master anywhere and everywhere. I'm dead to everything else. It's just you. It's just Christ. Here's where we now arrive at the third part of our test, really a result of passing the first two. Do you follow Christ in humility? Do you follow Christ in loyalty? The third part of our test, it's just a result. Do you follow Christ in expectancy? In expectancy. If you have come to Christ with no self-righteousness to offer and you've been humble, and if you've come to Christ forsaking all others in loyalty... Now you are following Christ in expectancy because with the sacrifice and with all that you give up to follow Christ, there's also great reward. Verse 26 continues, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus said of those who follow him, where I am, there will be my servant also, meaning that just as Christ suffered, so also we will be suffering if we follow him, but also that just as Christ has ascended in the glory, so we will also. Did you catch the familiar phrase he used? Where I am? Where else have we heard that? He said the same thing in John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Verse 26, Jesus is, he's promising eternal heaven. Yes, follow me to the cross. Yes, follow me to suffer. Yes, follow me to the rejection of your family, to the rejection of your friends, all that it costs to follow me. But as we pass through the cross, we go through the grave into the glories of heaven. Is this what you dream of? Or is following Christ for you just a means to an end for the things you want now? It cannot be both. Jesus is not the means to making your dreams come true. If you follow Christ, Jesus said, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Listen, God the Father will not reluctantly or begrudgingly receive you. He will not roll his eyes and say, okay, I guess you can come in. The God of the universe will honor you. It's a word that means to place great value on you. You who brought nothing... Because of Christ, the Father will honor you. Hebrews 2 verse 10 says that you will be counted among many sons who are brought to glory. Listen, the true believer in Christ follows in expectancy because we believe that following him will pay off. That there will be a payoff. That in eternity, as Paul said, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So do you follow Christ in humility, in loyalty, and in expectancy? We hold very strongly to the doctrine of regeneration as understood by the reformers that God alone is the one who causes a person to be born again. John chapter 3, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 2, many other passages very strongly teach this. But listen, those who understand the doctrine of regeneration, that being born again is exclusively a work of God, that understanding is very useful and very helpful to the true believer in Christ to understand grace and to understand that your salvation was purely God's initiative. Can I say this, though? From the perspective of the unbeliever, from the other side of that coin, God issues a clear and distinct call to follow Christ to take the initiative from a, from a human standpoint. If I can put it this way, the doctrine of regeneration should bring no comfort to the unbeliever. If you're in the church of Jesus Christ and you're on the line, you may be saved, you may be not, then you hear the doctrine of regeneration that it is the Spirit of God who causes us to be born again. Don't say, amen, I really believe that. That should scare you to death because you're on the wrong side. Jesus never said, 
don't worry about following after me. If you're of the elect, it'll just happen. He never said that. You know what he did say? Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you fail to do this, you will miss eternity with Christ. Do not take comfort from the doctrine of regeneration. That is useless to you if you're not in Christ. That is for those who are in Christ to look back at our salvation and revel in the fact that God did it. But for you, on the wrong side of the cross, on the wrong side of the Christ, on the wrong side of the wrath of God, on the wrong side of the anger of God, on the wrong side of the fury of God, you have been given one instruction and one instruction only. Follow him. Clear? Amen. Our Father, we are grateful to you because now on the other side of salvation, on the other side of the cross, as we look back, Lord, those who have come to faith in you, we realize that those moments of wrestling, those moments where we were, we were sweating our eternity, when we were fearful that we would miss salvation and we came with fear and trepidation and tears and shaking and trembling to the cross, asking for mercy, that we did decide to follow you. But now, looking back, we see that it was your spirit all along enabling us to follow you. And so we give you thanks. We thank you, Lord, that that very moment when each person who knows Christ humbled themselves and the Spirit of God broke our will and broke our spirit such that we could have faith in you. That was orchestrated and planned by you. And yet, in your mysterious sovereign plan, you will hold accountable every rebel who will not bend the knee, who will not follow. And so, Lord, this morning... For those believers who are exhorted and encouraged by the test of faith, we give you thanks, we give you glory, we give you worship. For those believers that in all honesty have areas of rebellion in which they are not walking in the manner worthy of the calling, I pray you would convict their hearts and teach them. For those unbelievers, Lord, who even at this moment may be fear, there may be dread, there may be terror, that perhaps... They have been fooling themselves. Let the Spirit of God enter into them, Lord, and regenerate their hearts. And for those unbelievers who even now are more smug and more self-righteous, would you reveal them? Would you be merciful to them? Would you help them? There's nothing more we can ask. Lord God, purify this particular body of believers. We pray, Lord, that those who do not know you would come this day. We pray for Christ's sake and in his name, amen.